0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Yeah. Mic check, mic check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? Word right up. That. biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone, they give some people allergies. They say it's not practical enough, just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian's not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty. Or it's a travesty. Or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we gotta see The importance of biblical theology What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key it's following the Bible storyline, and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation, from God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens, sturdy and fixed. to see the importance of biblical theology. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing, Lord. He gave us the Word, providing us correction in the Spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection. From ourselves and our improper reflections So we can follow the Bible, not just our affections Otherwise, we will chop it into sections And not make the connections like the doctrine of election And Satan is waiting to slice us in the meat. If our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep Theology is like the root of a tree Which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath Lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless And we'll experience true peace within our depth Because we'll know the meaning of Jesus it is death. Yeah. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance
2: of biblical theology. Welcome to another edition of Theology Matters, I'm your host, Devin Palou, and uh, so glad you guys joined us tonight. We are going to have a great show. We have uh, scheduled Dr. Phil Fernandez, who was on uh, maybe two weeks ago or so. We looked at his book, Hijacking the Historical Jesus. Tonight we're going to be going through his book, The Atheist Delusion, which is a uh, response to the new atheists. And so he's gonna be on in about twenty five minutes or so, so hang with us. Uh just um get some stuff out of the way real quick here. Um if you've not liked us on Facebook, uh be sure to go to our page Theology Matters with the Paloo slash Facebook dot com. Theology Matters with the Paloo slash Facebook dot com. There you'll find our uh, numerous podcasts that we've done, we try and uh, upload some articles and that every week, uh, just to to be there to kind of help, um, you know, equip those who are interested in apologetics and uh, wants to to know more about good sound biblical theology. And so, make sure you like us on there. We've done several debates in the past, um, so be sure to like us. So, uh, in August, starting next week, we are going to start a month long. Series of shows on science and the Bible, and we've been able to really get some some really uh, good guests. We'll have uh, Jay Weil with us next week. He was he's been with us before. Uh, he's known really popular among the homeschool crowd as he's written several uh, science textbooks. Uh, he used to be with Apologia. I'm not, I'm not sure who he's with now. I'll have that information next week. Uh, but he is a nuclear chemist and just a brilliant guy, loves uh, Loves the Lord, and is a great scientist. Um, following that, we're going to have Dr. Jonathan Sarfati from Creation Ministries International on. And Dr. Sarfati is uh, really known as probably one of the best defenders of the young Earth uh, position. You know, we don't try and take a stand on most issues. Uh, as far as you know if they're an in house debate. Uh and so, you know, with this, um we're gonna we're gonna bring on some old earth creationists, we're gonna bring on some young earth creationists and uh, you know, just try and get everybody angry at us. <laughs> but Sarfatius uh wrote a new book, uh new commentary on Genesis one through eleven. And in it he uh, he's unique because he knows the Hebrew as he's Jewish. Uh, but also a Ph.D. chemist, knows the science very, very good, and has written numerous books, Refuting Evolution, Refuting Evolution 2, Refuting Compromise, which is uh, probably the best book on the defense of the Young Earth view. Um, He's written several books. Um, Last time we had him on, we looked at his book, The Greatest Hoax on Earth, which was a response to Richard Dawkins. So... Be sure to join us for that. Uh, Then we plan on having a gentleman. We're going to get Fuzz Rana from Reasons to Believe, but he's actually going to be on vacation. So we're looking at getting uh, Jeff uh, Zerwick. I believe this is how you pronounce his name instead. And he's a, a colleague of Dr. He Ross and Rana there at Reasons to Believe. He'll come and join us. And in the last uh, month, uh, last show in the month, August 27th, will be a huge show as uh, we were able to get an interview with Dr. Stephen Meyer, and we're going to be looking at his new book, Debating Darwin's Doubt. It just came out July 21st, uh, and it's really a response to the critics that have come out against his book, Debating Darwin's Doubt. And uh, Casey Luskin will, will join us as well, uh, both of them, uh, you know, from the think tank, the Discovery Institute. And we really just want to spend the month looking at, at how there really is no conflict between good science and the Bible. And again, there's varying views out there. Um, you know, I have a position on the age of the earth, et cetera. Um, so we're not, I'm not trying to be divisive or anything like that, um, but, you know, there are views that are held within Orthodox Christianity, uh, and we want to, to represent those views and uh, bring in those who are the best possible spokespeople for those views and uh, and have a conversation about this, some of this, and maybe, maybe we'll even get to be able to... Uh, set it up and host a debate for next year and bring in some top Young Earth and Old Earth guys. Uh, finally here in October, we will do our third year in a row where we uh, basically dedicate the month of October to the Reformation, and we'll be bringing on some really good guests uh, for that as well. We're trying to line up a couple of debates. Uh, we had one that was set up, and uh, one of the ladies that were gonna, was going to do it just pulled out didn't feel like uh, she thought maybe she'd have enough time, and then after looking at it, she she declined. So we're trying to find uh, a few other uh, Roman Catholics who would be willing to do the debate. So, uh, you yeah, know, if you know anybody, drop me an email at theologymatters at yahoo.com and uh, try and get that set up. But the month of October, we will be... Uh, We'll be dedicating that to the Protestant Reformation and looking at some of those issues. So I wanted to bring on a good friend here for the first uh, 20 minutes or so uh, before we bring on Dr. Fernandez and introduce you guys to my good friend Chris. Uh, You guys know I normally bring uh, someone off for the first 20 minutes or so just to interview them on who they are and how they came to know the Lord and how apologetics and theology has helped them. So uh, my friend Chris here, he grew up in Grand Haven, Michigan, was educated in literature and journalism at Western Michigan University, as well as Grace Theological Seminary. He's a current current student in philosophy at SES. Uh, He is married with three children, lives in Hickory, North Carolina, and shares responsibilities educating his children, and is a campus uh, apologist minister with... Gratio Christie at Lenore Ryan. Uh, He's been to Ethiopia uh, four times teaching classes in philosophy and theology, and also works with women uh, and children who have been affected by HIV and uh, really just live in bad, bad areas. So he just got back from a trip, so I wanted to bring him on and talk a little bit with him. Chris, are you there? I'm here. How's it going, my friend? I can hear you loud and clear. How are you?
3: I'm good. I'm good. A little, little jet lagged still. So,
2: yeah, kind of recovering from
3: that.
2: <laughs> yeah, just coming back yeah. on a long flight.
3: Yes, sir. Tell us tell us about
2: yourself, Chris. Uh, what kind of a home did you grow up in? Was it a Christian home? Um,
3: we'll, mm-hmm. we'll start there. Grew up in... Uh, <clears throat> I was... Uh, this uh, second of youngest of two kids. I have an older brother. Um, uh, my dad was a teacher. My mom stayed at home. Um, we went to church every Sunday. Uh, you know, um, it was a pretty, pretty decent home life. Um, so I was 13 years old. Um, uh, my mother got in a really bad car accident, uh, lost a leg, got brain damage, Um, killed the driver who was a mother of four small children Um, and my mom also had um, some mental illness after that and so you know my dad also um, was uh, you know just really kind of trying to take care of my mom and stuff pretty there's a lot of anger in the home and so at that age I Um, gave God the middle finger and, uh, lived the, uh, life of a prodigal until I was 22. And some, uh, I just kept thinking about Jesus all the time. And I would run into people who tell me about Jesus. I would run into friends who started going back to church after ditching, uh, church. Um, so when I was 22, um, the lord brought me to himself in a really radical way uh, and uh it was just a really a very strong conversion experience on a on a sunday afternoon in june of 1994 um and after that i had an immediate awareness of uh skepticism in our culture so i went back to College, I wanted to finish what I'd started. I had dropped out of college uh twice because uh, I was uh you know a party boy um, so i had i had uh professors um attacking the bible um I had professors um espousing pluralism and and uh, just the mood on the campus was very like very negative in the 90s towards Christianity. Um, I guess it's gotten worse in some places. Um, so with that, I decided to go to seminary and uh, what got me started in apologetics was uh, listening to Robbie Zacharias's 1993 Harvard lectures. And I was uh, enraptured with the way that he handled the objections and just turned the tables on people and that got me started on that whole process but you just asked me about my home life and I just gave you my whole story so I guess you don't have to ask me any more questions now yeah it's
2: weird talking to you <laughs> <laughs> no that's that's fine um, talk a little bit about how you, how you came to know the Lord
3: oh gosh um Well, you know, I just, I remember when I was selling books door to door out in California, um, I would, uh, people would give me their testimonies. There was this one guy who, he was kind of a hippie looking guy, big long hair, big old mustache, you know, but he, he was just this really kind of a little guy, very super gentle, and he it was like a dream. He welcomed me into his little home and he and he opened up this beautiful wooden box and inside was a bible, a white leather bible with golden pages, you know, on the edges and he said and he slowly turned the pages and he said, I read this to my family every night You know, and he had been a biker and had been living a really wild life, you know, and uh and, and then I remember he told me if if he and his family had died, he and his whole family, including his children, would all have gone to hell and it would have been his fault. And I remember I asked him, I was like, What? <laughs> really? He's like, Yeah. So, you know, I don't know if that's good theology or not, but it stuck with me. You know what I mean? Right. Um yeah. it was it made an impression on me. And uh, you know, just little things like that, people that I would meet, um You know, a year later, I was in a bar back in my hometown with a girl that had gone to the Christian school, and because she had gone to the Christian school, I just felt like talking about Jesus. And I remember we're sitting at the bar, and I was talking about the death of Christ and eternal life in his name, and just marveling at how amazing that was. And I remember people looking at me like, are you okay? (laughs) You know, and, and just different things like that. You know, one time I was out with some friends getting stoned, and I was sitting in the back of the car, and we're listening to music and driving all over town. And I just remember seeing, like, imagining Jesus up in the clouds um, uh, with his arms open, wide open, and I just remember crying. And I was just, I, I just think that was the Holy Spirit working in my heart drawing me to Christ. And then finally, um, in June of 1994, uh, after a number of experiences like that, I, I submitted my life to the Lord and, um, you know, he totally changed my life. You know, I was,
4: um, uh, you know,
3: pretty wild person and, uh, he accepted me and forgave me and, Uh, He's been with me ever since.
2: Wow. How did you get into studying theology? You went there to the, uh, was it Grace Seminary?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Did you almost say cemetery?
2: Almost, (laughs) man. Some of them are, you know. I'm not saying you know what you went to, but some of them are.
3: Well, it started with, um, I had I had a roommate that was involved in a Bible study and led by a pastor in the IFCA church, independent, independent fundamentalist uh, uh, Bible churches. Right. So these are your ultra dispensational, um, premillennial uh, types, and uh, but they were really into this weird, mysterious thing called doctrine. I didn't. What is? I didn't know what doctrine was, but they're like, Chris, you got to get yourself some doctrine. You know, and they showed me all these books, and they're like, "This is doctrine. I'm like, what's doctrine? you know uh, I had no idea what doctrine was, but then they started uh, giving me these books, and I started reading them and uh it was this kind of this crazy guy from Texas named R. b. theme Jr. I don't know if you know who that was, but
4: Mm-hmm. He had his
3: own little system of thought, um, and I think he was semi-Pelagian, but I I remember just reading all of this stuff, and he wrote about every single topic available, and I thought, wow, the Bible speaks to all of these different topics? You know, like, what about those who've never heard, and the nature of the church, and the relationship between the church and Israel, and the nature of salvation, so uh, it, that's what got me started on that. And then I, uh, the pastor said, you know, Chris, you ought to think about going to seminary. Because I had wanted to go into campus ministry. And I thought, well, that's for the birds. But then when I visited and I saw the classes, I would be taking Greek and Hebrew and, you know, uh, theology and all this stuff. I, I just, it was like, I want to drink from this fire hose. So that's what I did.
2: Wow. And then after that, you started getting into uh, apologetics and that, right? How, how exactly – I know you said you listened to some Robbie uh, lectures. How did you mm-hmm. find out about SES and and, and what made you want to, to dive deep into philosophy?
3: Okay. Well, the, the thing with uh, Robbie was a, a friend at seminary, my buddy James, who's actually teaching philosophy – out west now at a at a secular school um, he turned me on to Ravi and uh you know we would just we would just sit up for hours and just talk and talk and talk um, and uh during my advanced systematic theology class our professor introduced us to the thought of Cornelius Van Til and uh presuppositionalist uh thought and and I was really blown away by um, uh, Van Til and John Frame and then Greg Bonson and Francis Schaefer and all these guys. Uh, uh, I was just very impressed with um, how they integrated a knowledge of philosophy and, and mostly epistemology in defending the Christian worldview now, I've actually departed from that school of thought a little bit more in favor of uh, the classical method, uh, familiar with um, Aquinas and, uh, you know, modern-day people like R.C. Sproul and stuff. But that's um, that's what got me started on that. And then uh, SES, um, probably through Ratio Christi, just people that I knew with Ratio Christi, um, telling me about SES, and I thought, well, it's all the way in Charlotte, and I don't really want to drive down to Charlotte to go to a seminary again, um, but they have a the part-time program, and it's online, so I figured, hey, I love philosophy, and um, I love to uh, improve myself, so I thought, let's go for it, so here I am. A Thomist, burgeoning Thomist, thanks to Dr. Bridges and (laughs) everybody at SES. (laughs) Much to the chagrin of my presuppositionalist uh, compatriots.
2: (laughs) There you go. We're glad we. uh, There you go.
3: Ed Ed (laughs) Spazer, The Last Superstition. That that book really did it for me. Aristotelian Metaphysics. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, talk about your, your heart a little bit here for uh, for for Ethiopian missions and some of the stuff you've been doing. you got about five minutes. So t- talk to us a little bit about that.
3: Okay. Uh, first one over there in 2010, and a friend of mine had been adopting over there, and he went to this hospital called Alert Hospital where there's a leper colony. And on his way there, he saw a huge landfill. Right in the city right kinda kind of at the southwestern edge of the city, and you notice a, um a large colony of people, maybe eighty thousand people living in uh little tiny tin roof mud homes uh not much bigger than uh than than a than a small bedroom in the u s you know uh, and uh, so he said, hey we gotta, we gotta raise some awareness of this place. And so we found out that it's, uh, there's people that went mostly women and, and children affected by HIV, um, dangerous place people forger forging in the dump, uh, for food and for things to sell, uh, lots of disease, lots of abuse of all kinds, um, uh, just, uh, just a, a reckless cycle of extreme poverty. So I went there and, um, uh, was just really heartbroken by what I saw and shocked. And, uh, and also, um, fell in love with a family over there as well, a woman and her two daughters and her son. And, uh, um, so we started sponsoring them, uh, through child sponsorship. And, um, um, now she's 20 years old. I met her when she was 15 the, the oldest daughter. She's 20 years old. She's in nursing school. The mom has not died. Uh, so it's just the three kids the father died a long time ago. And they're one of, you know, thousands of families in that area that are, that are exactly like that. Um, And the other thing that I do when I'm over there uh, that I've done twice is I've taught an Intro to Philosophy and Theology class at Evangelical Theological College. So that's a night class, and um, uh, basically um, I cover Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, Descartes, Hume, and Kant, and uh, the Problem of Evil, just to give them kind of a good overview of the major thinkers in the West, um, and, uh, uh, you know, I like to talk about, I like to do active learning with them and, and talk about the lives of these thinkers, not just their teachings, but their lives as well, because when you can fix a narrative uh, to the teaching, that always makes it more enjoyable, less, and a lot less boring.
2: In what what ways would you say that the the whole thing has kind of changed you, the the experience?
3: Um, That would take a lot longer than I can tell you in 60 seconds. Um, It has um, broken me. Um, I've probably wept more in the past five years than all of the previous 38 years combined. Um, it has caused me to pursue counseling, which has been extremely helpful, um, to me personally, to grow in my patience, uh, to grow in my trust in the Lord. Um, um, and it's helped me to minister to people too. So going to Ethiopia was a catalyst for me um to not only bring healing to others but to seek healing for myself for the wounds that i had in me from a child and as an adult it's made me um i just i guess it's just made me focus more on the reality that we have in christ that uh death and suffering uh Despite the allure of the American dream, is is uh, just a stark reality in this world. Um, and uh, y- you know, I've I've had a lot of cognitive dissonance um, being here and seeing the things that I've seen over there: beggars, and blind women, and men covered with boils from head to toe, and wow. uh, people with open wounds in their legs that cut down to the bone, uh, just lying there under tarps on the streets, big, huge, deep 10-foot pits in the sidewalks uncovered, rubble, massive piles of rock and stone, a government that won 100% of the elections recently, bloggers that get put in jail, uh, 80% of the population is in extreme poverty. There's a small percentage of middle class and wealthy. Um, just in, and, and, and then, you know, when I come back to Hickory and I'm surrounded by clean streets and order and beauty, uh, it can be kind of difficult to uh, process, but I'm getting better at it. The, the more you go over to a place like um, Ababa the easier it gets, I guess.
4: Wow.
2: Well, well I know that, uh, you know, the people are definitely blessed that you were able to go over there. And I know it's changed you. It's changed them. Just want to thank you for all yeah. you do, man. We'll, we'll have you come You're on welcome. again. and We'll do another uh we do yeah. have you on for a full hour and a half, don't we?
3: <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, my students love philosophy. They thanked me for teaching them how to think critically. Um, and they thanked me for teaching them philosophy. And and uh, we, had, we had just really loved each other. It was wonderful. Yeah.
2: Well... I'm uh I'm grateful for you. I know they're grateful for you.
3: And uh yeah. i will see you soon at, at the clinic. I'll see you soon at the clinic.
2: Yes, yep. We need to do that again maybe next Saturday or something. We'll we'll work that out.
3: So, Sounds good.
2: All right, buddy. Appreciate you calling in. And um yeah. Appreciate all you do.
3: Thanks, brother. I'll see you soon.
2: God bless. Alright folks, you too. Uh, we'll go ahead and, and uh, take a break right now and we will come back and we'll have Dr. Noel Fernandez on the line with us and talk about his book, The Atheist Delusion.
1: You're listening to the Ankerberg Minute with apologist and best-selling author, Dr. John
0: Ankerberg. How can we know that God exists? Well, there are many arguments for the existence of God, but one of the most popular is known as the moral argument. The moral argument shares that every law needs a lawgiver, a personal being who is the source of our innate sense of right and wrong. Since moral laws do exist, such as not lying, stealing, or not to murder, there must be an original source for these morals. The Bible explains that God alone is holy, righteous, and morally perfect, and exactly fits the description of this moral lawgiver. As Paul said, God's righteousness endures forever. God alone is holy and serves as our source of perfection and standard of guidance for life.
1: For additional resources on this topic, log on to johnankerberg.org. You're listening to the Ankerberg Minute
0: with apologist and best-selling author Dr. John Ankerberg. Some Christians are uninterested in the secular philosophical ideas taught in our universities because they seem unimportant. But is it right to ignore these ideas? I believe we do so to our detriment. Ideas being debated in our colleges and universities will eventually make their way to our government leaders and spread throughout society. The great Princeton theologian J. Gresham Machen once said, What is today a matter of academic speculation begins tomorrow to move armies and pull down empires. As Christians, we must not stand by and allow unbiblical ideas to gain ground. Jesus insisted that we love God with our minds. It is part of our duty to engage the world of ideas with biblical truth.
1: For additional resources on this topic, log on to johnankerberg.org.
2: All right, friends. Thanks for joining us again here. And uh, we're going to move into the second part of our uh, show here. It's kind of short on time. Uh, last, what was it was two weeks ago, we had Dr. Phil Fernandez on and looked at his book, uh, Hijacking the Historical Jesus, and wanted to get him on today to talk about his book, The Atheist Delusion: A Christian Response to Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins. So, Dr. Fernandez is the president of the Institute of Biblical Defense. He is the pastor of Trinity Bible Fellowship in Bremerton, Washington. Uh, he, let's see, he's got more degrees than a thermometer, folks. Uh, he's got a Ph.D. in philosophy of religion from Greenwich uh, University, a Master of Arts in Religion from Liberty University, and a Bachelor of Theology from Columbia Evangelical Seminary. He's publicly debated some of America's leading atheists. If you didn't catch the show, folks, go back and catch that. Uh, last time we had him on, like I said, about two weeks ago, and I really spent a good 30 or 40 minutes talking about uh, just kind of some of the behind-the-scenes things in his debates with guys like Dan Barker, Michael Martin, Jeffrey J. Louder, some of the big big hitters. Um, let's see. He has a Bachelor of Theology from Columbia Evangelical Seminary. And let's see. He, as far as his debates, he's debated at Princeton, University of Washington, Oregon State University, University of North Carolina, uh, he's a member of four professional societies, the Evangelical Theological Society, Evangelical Philosophical Society, the International Society of Christian Apologetics, and the International Society of, uh, oh wait a minute, I read that again, the Society of Christian Philosophers, so much there. Dr. Fernandez, are you with us?
4: Yeah,
5: yeah, how you doing, Devin?
2: I am doing good, sir, how are you doing?
5: Doing, doing real well, doing real well. Doing a lot of speaking this summer, so.
2: Are you? What, what do you got going on? Well,
5: I've just been speaking at a few conferences and a, a few uh, um, uh, churches, and i got a um an Awana scholarship camp to speak. i got to speak to high schoolers for, give ten lectures over a period of a week, and then after that I'll be speaking at the Truth and Love Conference in Arizona. I think it's in Phoenix. And, uh and then the school year will start, so I'll get back to that. But I've got, uh, hoping to be out there in North Carolina do some speaking uh, uh, at the, uh, Apologetics, the National Apologetics Conference. So just may make sure you, uh, let me know who to talk to on that now that Simon's moving on. So,
4: yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's good. So you'll, you'll, you'll be out here for that then. That's, that's good, folks. Uh, Dr. Fernandez was, uh, was uh, kind of the guy pushing me around in the wheelchair all la- last uh last time so i uh, got to got to go to all his thoughts for sure but uh, looking forward to that doc um, what are your thoughts uh before we move into the book your thoughts on the whole planned parenthood debacle going on? what are some of your thoughts
3: on that
5: um i I think we see you know the foundations of our culture uh you know eroding. And uh, this is not something. This is not something that should take Christian thinkers by surprise. I mean, C.S. Lewis in the 1940s, when he wrote *The Abolition of Man*, talked about that if if Great Britain and the West, if we do not acknowledge God's moral laws, and, and in the 1940s, Great Britain was starting to teach in the elementary school uh, that there was no such thing as right and wrong. He said this would eventually lead to the abolition of man, men without chest, men without moral consciences, the few would control and manipulate the billions. Um the laws would be set up to protect those in power because there was no longer would be any belief in any real uh transcendent values, right and wrongs that you know, moral laws that come from God Francis Schaeffer in the 1970s warned about this. He referred to it as the death of man in uh, his work, Back to Freedom and Human Dignity. Um, I spoke about it in the 1980s. In fact, in 1987, I wrote a little book and said that America would probably lose all its freedom by the year uh, 2020, roughly, if uh, we don't have uh, widespread revival in our country. And then I, I kind of updated some of my arguments there in God, government, and the road to tyranny. So it shouldn't come as any surprise to us that if God is dead, like Friedrich Nietzsche said, if God is dead, if you throw out God, uh, absolute truth and absolute morality go out the window as well. And so what we're, we're what we're seeing is the consequences of a culture without God. And so it only makes sense that an organization that makes billions of dollars slaughtering innocent unborn babies uh, is then going to look for uh, another way to make some extra money, so why not sell body parts? And this, this it's not a coincidence that this is happening right at the same time when our entire uh, Supreme Court pontificates and tells the entire culture that now we're supposed to embrace uh, same-sex marriage and so, right now, you know Christians are still free in America. We're just not quite as free as anyone else. The only one who's the only group that's mistreated worse than us it would be the unborn babies whose whose lives' uh right to life is not even respected um But we're free to practice our religion inside the walls of our churches, maybe even inside the walls of our homes as long as we don't spank our kids. But once we get outside into the public arena, all of a sudden we're the bad guys now. So this is Isaiah 520, what are those who call good evil and evil good. And uh, so none of this should surprise us. It should disgust us, but none of it should surprise us. And we're now, you know, we have a government that now is opposed to Christianity. uh, And a president, I would say, that is opposed to Christianity rather than seeing Christianity as something that's very wholesome for a society. So we're back in the book of Acts. You didn't see Paul or Peter fighting for legislation to protect babies or fighting for legislation to outlaw homosexuality. They had no political say. So all they could do was preach against sin and try to protect babies. They had their own little Operation Rescue back then, And um, and we're going to see ourselves having less and less political say. Uh, The true remnant, the true church, is probably going to have to go underground in the near future. Things are really that bad. So this Planned Parenthood thing is just one more sign uh, of a culture that has abandoned God. And, you know, this is what Friedrich Nietzsche, the German atheist, was saying. If God is dead, if we throw God off the bridge... We can't go through his pockets and say, well, absolute truth, we need that. Absolute morality, we need that. Meaning in life, we need that. Value to human life, we need that. Okay, now let's throw him off the bridge. If we throw him off the bridge, everything that's in his pockets goes with him. And so if God is dead, um, morality is dead, truth is dead, meaning is dead, and man is dead. And, um, and so what we're experiencing right now is what Lewis called the abolition of man and Schaefer called the death of man and it's it's pretty scary uh but you know we're just passing through here. We're ultimately we're not really citizens of America. We're citizens of heaven and that's where our citizenship is, that's where our king is. He still sits in throne, he's still in control, and we just have to uh proclaim his gospel um and um and just be be willing to suffer for our king who suffered for us.
2: Yeah, that's good. Good advice. Uh, let us I guess let's, let's talk to you. In your first chapter of the book, uh, Atheist Delusion, you start off by talking about militant atheism, I believe. Let's see here. The new militant atheism. Talk to us a little bit about what, what is the new militant atheism.
5: Yeah, well, with, with the new atheist... We don't see any new arguments. In in fact, if anything, like, you know, I debated one of the last, one of the last of the old atheists, Dr. Michael Martin from Boston University, who just died recently. I was honored on the secular web They even mentioned my name in his, in his obituary, um, that the fact that he had debated me and, um, but there was a lot of rational argumentation for atheism and against Christianity in his works. Um with the new atheist um, one thing that's new about them is there's a lot less emphasis on rational argumentation and there's a lot more militant rhetoric and uh and so i think what characterizes the new atheist is, is not so much that they've got new arguments but they've got a new attitude and um uh, if uh, if you don't mind i wouldn't mind reading the first paragraph of my book the atheist oh, delusion
2: Please do. Please do.
5: I, I, I state there, a new breed of atheists has arrived on the scene. No longer content with intellectual dialogue with Christians or others who believe in the existence of God, these atheists use rhetoric that portrays religious believers as the main cause of the major problems we face today. Implied in their rhetoric is the idea that Christianity and traditional religions need to be silenced or removed for mankind to move forward they seem to lack patience for religious people and believe that it is time to stifle their voices. And so so basically it's the tone that is scary. Now, you're not Mm. going to see Richard Dawkins saying, we need to arrest Christians and uh, execute them or whatever, Uh, but you will see him referring
4: in, in his
5: book, The God Delusion, referring to teaching children about God as child abuse. Now, Richard Dawkins, I would think, wants to see child abusers behind bars. So, if he's going to say we're guilty of child abuse, it implies that he wants something done. We've got to stop these irrational Christians from spouting their wild views. And um, and these guys, these guys, you know, Chris, the late Christopher Hitchens. uh They'll imply that, or they'll imply, they'll they'll explicitly say that, you know, they'll act like belief in God is the reason, uh, the cause behind all the wars
4: of mankind.
5: And that is really not true to reality, but that's what they want us to believe.
4: 9 11,
5: Christopher Hitchens used that as evidence against Christianity, because as far as he's concerned, there's no real difference between Muslims and Christians. We both believe in the existence of one creator God, therefore any building they blow up, any innocent people that militant Muslims kill, that's another strike against Christianity rather than what it really is, evidence against Islam and evidence uh, that it is not the true faith. And, uh, and and so it's actually should be viewed as a point for, uh, in favor of Christianity, a reason to get out of Islam and become a Christian. Uh, but whatever the case, the the rhetoric there is that it it's almost like these guys are impatient. They say, look, it's been you know 150 years since Darwin, and these guys are still around, and we can't have peace on earth and true sexual liberation and freedom and whatever it may be unless we get these loudmouth Christians out of the way. And so, um, so what's new about the new atheists is that they're more militant. It's their tone. It's um, uh, a very, uh, uh, very scary rhetoric to say the least.
2: Yeah, it really is. It's like you say. It's like they're, they seem to be louder and less sophisticated. That's really what it seems like. You know, I, I, I was, the Lord saved me while watching Gary Habermas and Anthony Flew debate,
4: praise and uh, God, I'm always. God.
2: Yeah.
5: I've was that always the, first, the first one? Because they debated three times.
2: It was the John Akerberg show, so but I think the second one.
5: Probably the second, yeah. Yeah, the first one was at Liberty University. and right. uh, But praise God for that. And, you know, Gary Habermas, he's my old rabbi. I haven't talked to him in a few years. <laughs> um, I saw him at the conference last year. wasn't able to talk to him. But, yeah, that brother loves the Lord, and um, his defense of the resurrection has has impacted so many lives. And, of course, Anthony Flew also debated William Lane Craig and eventually came to believe that a a personal creator God actually exists. Hopefully, on his deathbed, he turned to Christ for salvation because uh, we have no evidence of that. But he did acknowledge that if he ever accepted what he referred to as a revelatory religion, a religion where... Uh, God can perform miracles and communicate with man if he ever accepted a revelatory religion, it would be Christianity because of the charisma of Jesus and the intellect of paul so um uh, so yeah, Anthony flew was just um uh, very interesting there but but Gary habermas yeah it's he has done so much work and he's made it so much easier for younger apologists like us to defend the resurrection you know he's kinda done <laughs> he's kind of done all the research for us so.
2: Uh, so <laughs> right. it in half. yeah it just you know the the demeanor of anthony flew uh his calmness the guy is was brilliant you know i just you don't see that a lot and maybe that's because the quiet atheists like that that were more sophisticated et cetera. i guess they just they're not going to get the airtime um or the book the book deals uh, because you know, yeah,
5: no also, and... Anthony Flew was very interesting Because he was also a very honest guy
4: yeah, so When Gary right. Habermas
5: Would make a, ask him a question If he didn't know the answer He would say I don't know And you can only say I don't know So many times before you pretty much Concede the debate But he was a very honest atheist Also he was conservative in his political views He liked Margaret Thatcher So he had a fondness for Liberty University and Jerry Falwell Unlike wow. most atheists who would um you know didn't like Falwell very much I'll just put it put it that way and um and so um so it was uh was kind of interesting that um Anthony flew had a lot of friends who were christians and uh and he acknowledged they were good thinkers and uh but that's that's the old atheist now now you could see where the the old atheist. Kind of butt heads With the new atheists um, You know I've talked I'm not going to mention any names But I've talked to some of the atheists That were on or are still on The debate circuit That are not real fond of Richard Dawkins uh, uh, Arguments for atheism Arguments against Christianity uh, I've talked to eight atheist groups who um, you know? One told me they couldn't afford Christopher Hitchens. They'd like to get him, but um, I said, "Well, what about Richard Dawkins?" They said, "We don't want Dawkins. We're kind of embarrassed about him." And every wow. atheist society at a university, a major university in
4: this country. But uh, Anthony Flew gave a lecture.
5: Uh, well, see, first Richard Dawkins started the the battle between them. He said that you know something along the lines that maybe. Anthony Flew is suffering from, you know, maybe he's senile, maybe he's suffering from dementia, and that's why he believes in God. And Anthony Flew is furious, so he gave a lecture, I don't remember if it was at Cambridge or Oxford, but he gave a lecture uh, arguing that Richard Dawkins is an embarrassment. He's not a trained philosopher, he's trained in science, and he's not very logical in his uh, in his thought. And he's embarrassing Oxford, and he actually called for Richard Dawkins to be removed. Now, within a few months, maybe maybe six months to a year or something, Dawkins resigned from Oxford. Now, I don't know. Maybe it's because he's making millions of dollars debating and writing books attacking Christianity. He doesn't need uh, that position at Oxford anymore. Um or I don't know, maybe some behind closed doors they talked to him and said, You resign or we're gonna cut you loose but uh, but Anthony flew, uh even after he left the atheist camp still held an awful lot um of clout in Oxford and Cambridge circles and um uh but there's an example where the old atheist uh, often don't have a lot of respect for the new atheists. A lot of them see this uh this um uh, uh militant rhetoric as something unbecoming of a of a true scholar and they would like to see more rational argumentation than um than just name calling and ad hominem, you know, attacking the man type arguments.
2: Right, absolutely. You part in in this book. You have uh, one section laid out where they're talking. I think this is just very important. I, I think this is where really the whole hinge of a lot of this um, attack comes from. Page two, uh, you, you have a section at the top about religious uh, faith is blind. So a lot of the the fuel and a lot of the anger is over this idea that they think religion uh, religious people just have uh, blind faith. Christians have blind faith how do you how do you respond to that
5: well first off richard dawkins is showing he, he he goes even further than believing that religious faith is blind he believes all faith by definition is blind so he believes faith and reason don't intersect at any point so if you could ever prove your religious beliefs it would no longer be faith it would be reason but faith and reason are in totally different camps. And I don't think Richard right. Dawkins realizes that very few of the world's leading philosophers the past 2,500 years have held such a position. There are a few guys that it's faith only, you know, the existentialist camp, and they throw reason out the window. And then there are a few ultra rationalists, like uh, kind of the Benedict Spinoza camp where it's reason only, but for the most part, you probably have 95 to 98% of philosophers um, that acknowledge that there's some overlap between faith and reason, and the only way to say there isn't, the only intellectual way really to say that there isn't, is to either just side with it's all of faith or it's all of reason and and he's not doing that so so it's kind of it's kind of really weird it's it's a very anti-intellectual position that he holds the ultimate refutation of that was his first debate with John Lennox uh another Oxford scholar and it was a, the question of God's existence and Richard Dawkins says faith and reason never meet if you have faith in something then there's no reasons you can't have evidence for it so he he's saying i won't accept any evidence for christianity because it's it's religious faith, and all faith can't have any evidence for it. So you shot yourself in the foot. You can't even get started. So he said faith and and reason are mutually exclusive. And then John Lennox looked at him and said, uh, I'm going to poorly do an impersonation of him, but he said, well, surely now, Richard, you must have good reasons for having faith in your wife. And uh, Richard Dawkins said, good well, of dark. Course.
2: that was good. Yeah, was Richard good, Dawkins good said, well, of course, today. and
5: then the whole audience started laughing, and Dawkins got all red in the face and embarrassed and a little angry, but he was the only one who didn't get it. He said, faith and reason never meet, no overlap, yet I have good reasons to believe in my wife, to have faith in my wife's loyalty. And so what John Lennox showed in just one question, he just totally devastated one of the major foundations of Richard Dawkins' thought And that is that you can have a rational faith. Faith and reason are not mutually exclusive. In fact, Richard Dawkins has faith in science, in finding truth through the five senses. Well, there's a whole lot of um, faith positions that scientists have to take before you can start doing science. I mean, science cannot prove... The basic reliability of sense perception; it assumes it. Uh, it does. The scientists really don't prove that there's a. They can't prove scientifically, at least, that there's a physical world outside their mind. So there's all these philosophical, faith assumptions that they make before science even gets started. They have to uh, presuppose the existence of a non-material uh, value called honesty, because you have to honestly report the results of your experiments and the list goes on and on and he has he's oblivious to all the faith that he exercises and a lot of times it's reasonable faith when when you sit down on a chair you're exercising faith in man's ability to build sturdy enough chairs to hold the weight of a human being when you drive your car 2,000 pound car over a concrete slab called a bridge
4: reinforced
5: with iron, and maybe some cables there, maybe it's one of those cable bridges, suspended hundreds of feet over a large waterway, you're exercising an enormous amount of faith in man's uh, ability to build these structures to support that kind of weight, yet I would argue that's a pretty rational faith. You have good reasons for that faith. So the issue isn't, uh, well, if you have faith, you don't. Uh, it's just blind, irrational faith. No, uh if you have faith in something, uh I want to know if you have good reasons for your faith. I would argue Richard Dawkins has an he thinks he has no faith, it's all reason, it's all science and it's all reason for him. I would argue that he's exercises more blind faith than just about anybody I know because you know I believe that an infinite being um who is all powerful created the universe the physical universe, out of nothing. Now, he might think, well, that's blind faith. No, blind faith is when you believe that nothing, absolute nothing, has the ability to create everything. This is why This is why Dr. Norman Geisler, a good friend and former professor of both of us, and, um, and Frank Tarek wrote, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Imagine that, I, believing in... Believing in an all-powerful God, we're supposed to be the idiots? When they believe in all-powerful nothing, it it is actually impossible for nothing to cause anything. Yet they believe that the whole universe was created by nothing. It popped into existence totally out of nothing, totally without a cause. Um, Then uh, they believe from there that life evolved from non-living material when it has been scientific, spontaneous generation has been spun, has been scientifically refuted. So there's another leap of faith. And then multi-celled animals coming from single-celled animals, that's a leap of faith as well. And the, the list goes on and on. Every major jump that evolution has to take um, is a blind faith assumption that violates known scientific laws um, and yet, Richard Dawkins wants us to believe he's he's a rational man with no faith at all. I would argue that his militant atheism. You know, my my question to the militant atheist is, if you don't believe God exists, why do you hate him with so much passion? And, um, right. and I would argue that if anybody's being irrational, it's the hyper-emotional new atheist who hate God so much they just can't contain it anymore, and they're just lashing out at a god that they claim they don't believe exists. So um so whatever the case, uh faith and reason uh can be compatible. If you're if what you believe is based on good reasons, it's a rational faith. If what you believe goes against all the good evidence, then it's an irrational faith and to believe that the entire universe was produced by nothing um that's about as uh, rationally absurd as you could possibly get.
2: <laughs> yeah, well love how you you put that there, Doc. You don't play around. That's good. Well let's let's move on to the uh this is chapter chapter two, I think this would be a good one. What is religion? Now, this is a interesting question. I often hear a lot of times Christians will say things like, uh Christianity is not a religion; it's a relationship. And uh, personally, I cringe when I hear that uh, because I don't think it's an either-or. I think it's a religion with a relationship, but there's still a religion nonetheless. How, how would you uh, talk about that there in your, in your second chapter? What are some of the some of the points you bring yeah, out on yeah.
5: that? Yeah, first first off, I'll talk about that that, that statement when when it's said over and over again by Christians, usually anti- anti-intellectual Christians, that Christianity is not a religion, it's a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus, that's a true statement in one sense. You know, the law of non-contradiction, A cannot equal non-A, at the same time, in the same way or sense. But that's true okay. in one sense. If we define um, religion as man's attempt uh, to save himself, to earn his own salvation... And certainly all the world's religions, except for Christianity, you have man uh, earning his own salvation. And and so in that sense, it would be true. But religion can be used in another sense, like the way James uses it, where he says true religion is not just being undefiled by the world, but is also visiting widows and orphans in their time of need. And religion there, what he just means is our man's response to God. And James is not saying religion saves us. Um, He's saying
4: that once
5: you are saved, um, what should your response be to God? Uh, um, How should you respond? And he said basically, you know, love God with everything you got and love your neighbor as yourself is what he's pretty much saying and help those less fortunate um, than ourselves. So a lot of times we just equivocate. On the word "religion, and we just need to define our terms, so when you teach a world religion i I've been slammed by Christians for teaching a world religion course and including Christianity as one of the world's religions you say, oh, Christianity is not a religion uh it's a personal religion with Jesus' well, look I know what you're getting at, but if we identify a religion as uh either someone's belief in God or just in in how what what the person's ultimate commitment is which is a truer definition of the word what they believe reality is all about the reason why they get up in the morning then Christianity is one of the world's uh religions so the problem there is with anti-intellectual Christians um we often cling to a cliche that might be true in one sense but false in another sense And we use it for both senses, so we're just kind of making fools of ourselves. Um, But in reality, uh, the new atheists aren't doing much better than anti-intellectual Christians when it comes to defining religion. Uh, Defining religion is not easy. Because if we say, in order to be religious, you have to believe in at least one god, if not many gods, um, then Buddha was not religious. And traditional Buddhism is not a religion, because Buddha himself was agnostic concerning God's existence. He wasn't sure if God existed. In fact, he didn't even think it was relevant. All that mattered was finding enlightenment, and so it's irrelevant if God exists. And um, and so um, uh, the 19... I can't remember. I think it was 1961... Supreme Court, uh, Terqueso versus Watkins, the Supreme Court decision, ruling about secular humanism, that belief in God is not essential to a religion. And so basically, and the secular humanists themselves, atheists, Humanist Manifesto number 1, 1933, they state over and over again, they refer to, to atheism as a faith, and they say that man is incurably religious. There is nothing in man alien to the religious. And they claim their religion is atheism. So it was kind of like in the early 20th century, atheists used to argue that atheism is a religion. Therefore, they have they should have their own freedom of speech and freedom of religion for their beliefs. And you can't discriminate against their religion. So they should be allowed to teach their religion in the public schools Alongside Christianity and Judaism, once they got their foot in the door, once the camel got his nose in the tent, then they started arguing that atheism is not a religion, and we should get religion out of the public schools. So we should only teach atheism. So, um, so it's it's really you know really um, uh, being double-minded there. It's being contradictory. It's being uh, unfair. But right now,
4: atheists like
5: to argue that atheism is not a religion, um, but Christianity is. But here's the way I'll I'll kind of get to the point on this. If I say God exists, and that is a religious statement, then when somebody says God does not exist, how can that not be a religious statement? Because they haven't changed the subject, so we're still talking religion – they just negated a statement that I made. So, so, so ba- basically, if I say God exists, and you say, no, I disagree, God doesn't exist, we're still talking the same subject. So it's still a religious uh, statement. But in reality, religion, rightly defined, is uh, it deals with the the transcendent and man's ultimate commitment why do you get up in the morning? Why do you do what you do? What what is uh what gives meaning to your life? That's what your religion is. And these new atheists are more passionate about their atheist beliefs than most Christians are about their Christian beliefs.
4: And so the idea that the uh, that atheism is
5: not a religion is just plain false. It's it's um it has a belief system that controls their behavior and gives them purpose in life and they fight for their cause um that's their ultimate commitment that's their religion
2: yeah I think that's that's good I, I talk talk about um a little bit here let, let me give a number out real quick for people that are wanting to call <clears throat> call in 760-542-3907 760 542 of if you want to call in and do, uh, talk to Dr. Fernandez, uh, you know, as usual, you don't have to agree, uh, but would love to hear from you, Dr. Fernandez. Oftentimes, when you when you talk with atheists, um, there's a kind of a uh, debate that goes on over agnosticism and atheism. Uh, it seems like now they have kind of defined atheism as a lack of belief. Talk about the distinction between uh, atheism and agnosticism, and, and why is it so many uh, believers today are wanting to, or uh, atheists today are wanting to, to, to change that around?
5: Yeah, well, basically, atheism, it comes from Greek words, and it, it just means athios, no God. So historically, atheism has been the belief uh, that there is no God. Uh, the problem two problems with that view and um, one is uh, you would pretty much have to be God in order to know with certainty that no God exists it was too lofty of a goal so even in the 1940s I believe 1948 um, when Bertrand Russell, the world's leading atheist debated Frederick Copleston, a Jesuit priest on the existence of God over the British Broadcasting Channel, um, Coppleston asked Father Coppleston asked Bertrand Russell, "What would you classify yourself? Are you an atheist?" And he said, "No, I'm an agnostic."
4: And so he claimed,
5: "No, you know, agnosis, no knowledge." So he's claiming, uh, "I'm an agnostic." Now you could be a hard agnostic and say. Not only do I not know that God exists, but it's impossible for anyone to know that God exists, or it's highly improbable that anyone could know God exists. We have – not only do I have no knowledge of God, no one does. They don't know what they're talking about. There's no, there's not enough evidence out there to believe in God. Um, a soft agnostic would just say, well, I haven't seen enough evidence to believe in God, but maybe you're right. Maybe if you talk with me, maybe you can convince me. Who knows? But I haven't seen enough evidence. Well, the soft agnostic is just that those are just the buddies that we have that we witness to and we have nice dialogues with. The hard agnostics, right. though, they're the ones that are convinced that not only is there not enough evidence for Richard Dawkins to believe that God exists, there's not even enough evidence for Devin and Melissa Pelou to believe that God exists. So if Devin and Melissa Pelou believe in God, they're mistaken and all. But what happened, though, was, number one, the atheists realized you'd have to be all-knowing to know with certainty to prove that God does not exist. And that's pretty difficult to prove, so we got to back off from that. And then in the 1920s, when we found that the universe was expanding in all different directions and we came up with Big Bang cosmology, then science had to acknowledge that the universe had a beginning. So the atheists of the of the 19th century, like Friedrich Nietzsche, who died in 1900, he believed that the universe doesn't need a cause because it's eternal; it never had a beginning. So now, all of a sudden, it's become difficult to say, well, uh, God definitely doesn't exist, um, but the universe did have a beginning. So you know, we everybody used to agree if something has a beginning, something else had to cause it to come into existence. So the uh, 19th century atheist said, "Yeah, but we don't believe the universe had a beginning, so we don't believe the universe needs a cause. Um, whatever had a beginning needs a cause, but the universe didn't have a beginning. Well, now they acknowledge, well, the universe has a beginning. So now the evidence seems to point to it having a cause, and so uh, atheism suffered a not a, not just a severe blow, but a fatal, uh, a, a mortal head wound." So that um, atheism is dead right now, and so the new atheists um, are not really atheists at all; they're agnostics. So by in the early 1990s, um, Professor uh, Michael Martin, in his book *Atheism: A Philosophical Justification*, he redefines—and he wasn't the only one who was doing it at that point—but uh, but it was a, a scholarly, you know, Boston University professor the scholarly presentation of, in his appendix, where he redefines atheism not as a a positive belief that God does not exist, but just as the lack of belief in God's existence. And what that is, attempt, so in other words, it's kind of like the atheists are backing down without admitting they're backing down, and so now they're saying, well, the burden of proof is on you, Because I don't have to prove a lack of belief in something. If you believe in something, you've got to prove it. And uh, so they argue that we've got the burden of proof. And I would respond to two ways to to argue against that. Number one, when 95% of the world's leading philosophers throughout history, and probably over 90% of the people on the planet Earth, believe that some type of God exists, um... I think the burden of proof is on the five to ten percent who disagree with us, you know that 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 that's number one uh number two, if these atheists only lacked belief in God and it was they really didn't reject you know have this positive belief there is no God, if they just lacked belief in God, then I don't know why they would be so courageously take debates. It seems to me you you if you're going to take a debate you have a a view to defend and so that's why i argue the question should not be in our debates does god exist it should be theism versus atheism and of course atheism yeah. is just hard agnosticism there is really no there are no more thinking atheists anymore all the atheist thinkers now classify themselves very conveniently as agnostics um but they really do have something to defend and so that's where I say, you know, I debated Michael Martin in 1996 that it's mano y mano. It's one-on-one, theism versus atheism, which belief system is more reasonable. And um, uh, But if you're going to put all the burden of proof on one side or the other, you're just going to stack the deck, and it's going to be very easy to present um, some kind of reasonable doubt. But in a fair debate, I think both sides – we're not just talking the rules of academic debate. We're talking a fair debate between two yeah. worldviews, theism right. versus atheism. Let's see which is more reasonable. You know, we both agree the universe had a beginning. Is it more reasonable that the universe had a cause, or it had no cause, and that nothing produced everything? You know, Nothing is nothing. Nothing could do nothing. Nothing could cause nothing. Therefore, if the universe had a beginning, something else had to cause it to come into existence. So... Whatever the case, uh, it's a very evasive tactic, but technically atheists, uh, thinking atheists, uh, don't call themselves atheists anymore. Now they claim to be hard agnostics. Well, they're actually hard agnostics,
4: and they've changed
5: the definition of atheism through a sleight of hand.
2: Right. That's good. That's And you're right, because both sides have a burden of proof. Yeah, I think ultimately – the way it's got to be done is, is I know in your debate, you, you do a cumulative case. And I think that's just how it's got to be done. You can't just look at one, one single thing. For example, the atheists want to just uh, examine the problem of evil and look at nothing else. But when you look at the whole spectrum of the origin of life, fine-tuning of the universe, morality, the resurrection, etc., you know, I think that's how it's got to be evaluated, not just uh, in you know one one particular thing in isolation of everything else, you know.
5: Yeah, and 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 I do that because you know I, I care about people, and I recognize some arguments don't resonate with people, and other with with some people, and other you know they might some people might really like the moral argument but not like the teleological argument, the argument from design. And and so basically I try to give a smorgasbord of ideas, and I, I, I build a cumulative case for God, and I just argue that theism is more reasonable than atheism. Now, uh, I catch so much friendly fire for doing that. I have a lot of counter-cult uh, Christian friends who act like I'm, all, I'm I'm only saying that God only probably exists. He doesn't definitely exist. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, my my arguments are not based on a lack of faith in God. It's based on a little bit of humility in Phil Fernandez. You know, if my name is William Lane Craig, you know, then I'm going to argue for God's existence beyond all reasonable doubt, and I'm going to defeat my opposition. If my name name is Norman Geisler, then I'm going to argue for God's existence with actual undeniability and use Thomistic arguments and wipe out my opposition but I uh, but I'm just Phil Fernandez some kid who grew up from in New Jersey and so I'm just going to you know why should why should the I accept terms to a debate where if the atheist just raises 2 or 3% doubt he wins right. and, uh, and so I'm going to say no if, if I prove 51% of my case I win the debate let's take it out of the criminal courts where it's beyond all reasonable doubt and put it in the um, civil courts, where it's just the preponderance of the evidence. If I tip the scales in in the favor of God, I win the debate. And I think when we do that, we see how far superior the Christian worldview is. Now, having said that, I don't believe that God just probably exists. I believe God definitely exists and uh, for two main reasons. Number one, because it's actually impossible for nothing to cause anything so if all finite existence had a beginning and if all finite existence cannot account for its continuing existence then uh the only the only way to ground the continuing existence of of all finite existence is with infinite being and um And if all finite existence had a beginning, all finite existence had a cause. By definition, it had to have an an infinite cause, infinite being which needs no cause. So I think it's actually, I think Geisler's right, it's actually undeniable that God exists. And and, and that's through uh, our reasoning processes we could find that out. But even beyond that, once uh, a person becomes a Christian, then we have the voice of the Holy Spirit in our lives, so William Lane Craig points out that we don't have to have certainty, rational certainty, but we can have certitude because the Holy Spirit bears w- with our spirit that we are uh, children of God. And um, and so, um, you know, so, so basically Dan Barker didn't even understand my point. He said, what would I have to do to disprove God? I said, not only would you have to make a strong rational case that God doesn't, an evidential case that God doesn't exist. But I've personally encountered God, so it, it's kind of like it's tantamount. You'd have to be like disproving the existence of my brother Mark, because I had a personal relationship with my brother Mark, and I continue to have a personal relationship with my brother Mark. Well, I have a, a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus, and so if I've personally encountered Him, even rational arguments wouldn't be enough, and I don't even think anybody's come close to disproving God's existence, and I think the evidence on the rational side is overwhelmingly in favor of God's existence, but even if there were some big attacks, some big rational evidence against God's existence, which, again, I've never seen, um, I would still have to deal with the fact that I've encountered and continue to encounter um, uh, this God. So I think there's both, uh, you know, Thomas Aquinas talked about belief that is driven by reason but belief in starts off with an act of the will so once you believe that God exists uh, and you believe that Jesus is Savior then you need to believe in him and that's an act of the will but once you enter that personal relationship with the Lord Jesus um, you have some existential evidence um, of his existence as well and so sometimes we're we Christians and atheists can be too far on the rational rational side or too far on the experiential side, but it's both ends. That's why I say true spirituality is both propositional truth plus personal relationship, and um, it's a both-end situation. It's not an either-or, and uh, we have to not only rationally know God with our minds, but also experience him uh in our lives and um and so uh but whatever the case uh, uh and so William Lane Craig deals with that with the certitude that the Holy Spirit brings brings to us but but basically I'm just I'm just saying look I'm going to just humbly debate these brilliant atheists and just show that theism belief in God is much more reasonable than atheism when you look at some of the common aspects uh, of human experience
2: Right. All right, folks, Um, we have Dr. Phil Fernandez online uh, with us here, and we are interviewing him on his new book, The Atheist Delusion. We have uh, about 40 minutes left. Uh, So we're going to go ahead and take a break. If you'd like to call in and talk with Dr. Fernandez, the number to call is 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. We'll come back. We'll look at science and God as well as uh, the New Testament and some other issues. So stay with us. Welcome to the One Minute, ap- minute Apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack the audience, what about those who've never heard about Jesus Christ? And how does intelligent design differ from
6: a theological doctrine of creation? How do you answer that? Well, creation is always about the source of being. Where does everything come from? And uh, one, one way you might, might illustrate that is a joke that was making around on the internet some years back where scientists come to God and they say, We can do everything you can do. God says, Oh, that's interesting. Show me. And then they say, Well, we can, uh, we can create humans from scratch. We can take some dust. And, and as they're about to continue, God says, Well, wait a second. Get your own dust. Okay. Now, that's what creation is it's giving being to existence. Carpenters take pre-existing materials. They're designers. And design is about taking pre-existing materials and finding patterns that point you to intelligence. So uh, another way I illustrate this is you imagine a pan balance. You've got a veil that includes one side, and you've got one pound weight on this side, which is up. How much weight is on this other side? Well, you you know it's more than one. It could be two pounds. It could be five pounds. It could be a million pounds. And that's how it is with intelligent design. We know that there's an intelligence behind the things that we see in nature behind things in biology and cosmology but getting to an infinite personal transcendent creator god of Christianity is not something the logic of intelligent design can take us to but it's friendly to Christian theism in a way that uh, atheism, uh, the, the Darwinian evolution and uh, materialistic evolutionary theories are not so it gives you a lot, it takes you some way you know, it's closer to the kingdom but if you want the gospel you're going to have to go to the gospel those of you that want to learn more, this book,
2: The Design Revolution, was very helpful to me amongst many of his other books.
7: Hi, I'm Frank Turek. There are four major questions we cover in it. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist seminar. The first question is, does truth exist? This book, the Bible, can't be true if truth doesn't exist or if it's just true for you but not for me or all truth is relative. We're going to show in the first part of the seminar that truth does exist and you can know it. Because, you know, if truth doesn't exist, then this book, The God Delusion, can't be true either. But we're going to show that the book could be true. So could this be true? So we cover does truth exist first. The second question is, does God exist? the Bible can't be true if God doesn't exist. If there is no God, you might as well throw this book away and every other book that talks about God. But we're going to show, through two scientific arguments and one philosophical argument, that there's a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent creator out there, and we're not going to use the Bible to show you that evidence. We're just going to give you evidence and let you see where it leads. The third question is, are miracles possible? Again, this book can't be true if miracles are not possible. If miracles are not possible, throw this book away and every other book that talks about miracles. We're going to see that not only are miracles possible, but the greatest miracle of all has already occurred, and we have scientific evidence for it. We're going to show you that evidence, and then we're going to deal with David Hume's argument against miracles and show you that Hume was not only wrong, there is good evidence to believe in miracles. The fourth and final question is, is the New Testament true? The New Testament doesn't have a prayer. Truth doesn't exist, God doesn't exist, or miracles are not possible. But if truth exists, if God exists, if miracles are possible, then we can see if miracles actually occurred in the first century to authenticate Jesus and his apostles as truly being from God. We can look at the 27 handwritten Greek manuscripts we call the New Testament and see if they're historically reliable. If they are, and we will show you evidence that indeed they are, then we can say that the entire Old Testament is true as well. You'll see why when you come to the seminar, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Please come and bring your friends. See you there. Oh, I forgot one more thing. If I time the seminar exactly right, there'll be no time for your questions. No, no, no. There will be time for your questions, so please come with your questions, whether you're a Christian, an atheist, or anyone in between. We're going to try and answer your questions, so there will be time for that. Hope to see you at the seminar. Thanks.
2: Folks, we are back and we have Dr. Phil Fernandez on the line with us and we are going over his book, The Atheist Delusion and have been seeing some pretty uh, pretty good stuff here. This this book is it's one of the most powerful uh, Christian apologetics books for the price and for the size. So I definitely want to recommend that. Go to our Facebook page. We'll have a link up for it. Uh, Doc, chapter 3, you deal with, does science disprove God? And many people think that it does. That's one of the reasons many people will give for not believing that God exists. Walk us through this. Does science and Christianity, are they in conflict? Is science proving God does not exist?
5: Yeah, the, the short answer is no. Science doesn't disprove God. But um, but I want to talk a little bit about why that's the case. Um, uh, first off, you know, Christianity uh, was very instrumental in the founding of modern science. You know, the, great,
4: the ancient Greek
5: philosophers, they could do science, but there was always the possibility that, well, maybe our senses are deceiving us. We have no guarantee that... Our sense perception is basically reliable, and you know the Greeks came up with the logos doctrine that maybe there's a rational mind behind nature, and it is the, the the logos enlightens our minds to understand the order in the midst of all the flux and the chaos of the physical world but then deep down inside the Greek philosophers knew, but yeah that we just kind of plugged the logos doctrine in because we needed help. We have no real guarantee. So there was always that lack of confidence in doing science until the Christian worldview began to grow more and more throughout Western civilization and became the dominant worldview. And and then because of Christianity, because it is not anti-intellectual, because it it really sets us free intellectually, um, the, the more and more universities were being built and um, You know, even like with the Galileo debate and things of that sort, that was a debate between Christians, because all the scientists uh, were trained or worked at Christian universities. And so Christianity gave birth to modern science, so all the founders of modern science were all uh, Bible-believing Christians. And um, at the outset of modern science, at its start, was the belief that we're going to look at, one of the things science is going to do, we're going to look at natural effects, effects in nature, and we're going to find out what their causes are. And if the cause or causes turn out to be supernatural, so be it. That's allowed. So originally science dealt with examining natural effects and looking for their causes, whether they be natural or supernatural. Uh, But somewhere along the line there was that sleight of hand again where all of a sudden in the universities, science began to teach, or scientists began to teach, science professors began to teach that science not only is the
4: examination
5: of natural effects, but you're only allowed to find natural causes. So if you think you found a supernatural cause, all kinds of buzzers go off. That's, it's a foul ball. That's not allowed. Uh, you're no longer doing science. Um, Dan Barker argued that way in my debate against him, that if you could find scientific evidence for God, it would no longer be science. That's not allowed. You're not even allowed to find uh, evidence for God. So it's not like science disproved God. It's just that the uh, movers and the shakers within the scientific community – were biased against God, and they decided to just rule them out of rule him out of the scientific enterprise, in a, in a, just a real illegitimate. They just kind of redefined what science was. So science has never really disproven God. Um, Richard Dawkins himself, mo- most scientists, they you know, if you're if you're a geologist, you just study rocks. I mean, you just you know you just do. You're an expert in your field, but you may not have a good philosophy, a good understanding of philosophy of science. And if you want a good understanding of of the philosophy of science, what science actually does, I recommend Dr. Norman Geisler and Dr. Uh, and Jay Kirby. And he should have a doctorate degree. The guy is so brilliant, Ivy League. He's got something like two Ivy League master degrees. But Jay Kirby Anderson and Norman Geisler, their work origin science where they explain the difference between origin science and operation science.
7: Operation
5: science would be if you've never seen a car before, and you you saw a car and you turned on the ignition, and then you started to figure out how it operates. That's operation science. But once you figure out how the car runs, how the car operates, you haven't answered the question how it got there. What is its origin? What caused the car to come into existence? That's a whole separate question. And what the evolutionists are doing is they're dealing with operation science, uh, science of the repeatable uh, current processes, repeatable events, and they're acting like that's the way you answer uh, how everything got there. When in reality, origin science deals with singular events of the past, whether it's God creating the universe And first life and complex life forms Or if it's uh, life evolving from non-life Or the universe popping into existence out of nothing And complex life forms evolving from from simple life forms That would be uh, operation Uh, That's not operation science It's not a current process that can be observed right now So you can't use the scientific method That's one of the big lies The scientific method starts observation but it's not the only way to find scientific truth Uh, you could also find scientific truth um, through origin science using uh, the law of causality and the law of analogy or uniformity where causality every effect must have an adequate cause and then analogy or uniformity similar effects probably have similar causes and that's what we do when we do forensic science uh forensic science crime scene investigation you don't hide in the bushes to see if the murderer comes back and will continue murdering the same victim over and over again it's not a process it's a singular event in the past so you look at circumstantial evidence and uh, and try to uh uh figure out what happened and uh, so it might be fingerprints it might be finding the weapon it might be you know uh blood stains whatever um, and it's still science, but it's uh, origin science. And so when you look at origin science and you try to study the singular events of the past, the origin of the universe, the origin of first life, and the origin of complex life forms, you find that the creation model, it's not a theory. To, to get a theory, to get a scientific theory, you've got to start with observation and use the scientific method. And neither evolution nor creation can do that. So what you have to do is instead it's a model, a way to interpret the evidence. And the, science, the creation model is much more plausible than the evolutionary model for the origin of the universe because it's either, it's either a supernatural cause caused all of nature to come into existence or nothing caused all of nature to come into existence out of nothing. And that's, you know, creation is much more plausible And then for life to come from non-living material, you have uh, an increase in information, so you have to have at least 20,000 volumes worth of encyclopedia, uh, that much information to get uh, uh, the most primitive of life. Um, Well, an increase of information is going to take intelligent intervention And um, just as mutations only garble the already existing genetic code, it doesn't add any new information. For uh, life to come from non-life, you would need a great increase in information. And for complex life from simple life, you would need a great increase in information. And that only comes um, from intelligent intervention. So when it comes to the origin of the universe, origin of first life, and origin of new complex life forms... The creation model is far superior to the evolutionary model. So basically, it's just a a biased choice of the scientific community to go against the evidence. By the way, I I hate when I hear people like Richard Dawkins say, no, no scientist believes in creation. I I can't even – you know, we'd be sitting here for hours if I listed – All the young Earth creation scientists – I mean, legitimate scientists, guys who are – a lot of these guys are retired in their scientific fields, but they've done 30 or 40 years for for Boeing or Microsoft or uh, uh, Logheed, whatever it may be. But these are legitimate scientists who made their – they didn't just talk about science and were science professors. They actually were legitimate scientists who did science. It's amazing how many are young Earth creationists, old Earth creationists, and then there are some that are theistic evolutionists. Uh, but this idea that all all scientists are atheists is, is just plain bogus.
2: Yeah, did you, did you ever see his debate? I think it happened in 1985 uh, in Oxford against the triple doctorate, A.E. Wilder Smith. Uh, it was a tag team debate. He, he and uh, I can't remember who the other partners were. But going in there, uh, the vast majority of the crowd uh, was atheists. And after the debate, Dawkins pleaded with the crowd not to to give any votes to the creationists. And I think at the end of the debate, the the evolutionists won the you know the popular vote. But uh, I think the creationists got like over well over 40 percent. And uh, he was outraged. And uh, after that, he swore he would never debate another. Creationist, but yeah, so I think it's someone like A. E. Wilder Wait, Where, Smith, was, that triple, yeah, was, Wait, where Oxford, was that debate held? Yeah, I think it was in the Oxford. Where was that
4: debate
2: held? I want to say it was in the Oxford Union. I, I can look that up. Um,
4: and did, it, it, have you heard who A. E. Wilder Smith is? You 40, right? If you
5: get forty percent in one of the world's most prestigious universities, where atheism is almost dogmatically taught in their science departments. 40% is pretty, pretty good. Uh, if that debate were held in a traditional evangelical church, the atheists would have been lucky to get 3 or 4%. So, um, so you know, and and I don't even like – I don't even think I would accept a debate if they were going to vote because I, to me it's just if I debate and there's a 1,000 atheists show up and no Christians show up and I convince just one of them to become a theist – and maybe to look into Christianity, as far as I'm concerned, that's a great victory. So I don't even care what the world I think we're gonna you know, if we reach the day where everybody on the planet Earth was an atheist except for me and you, it wouldn't make the case for uh, uh God's existence any weaker. So uh, yeah. but, but whatever the case, um in these you know, when you go right into um the headquarters of the enemy, um you go behind enemy lines, and you get 40% of the vote. That's uh, that's a pretty big statement yeah, uh, right let, there.
2: Let me, uh, let me read this section real real quick. It's on uh, uh, creation.com. com. says, A.E. Wilder Smith was probably responsible for Richard Dawkins refusing to debate creationists anymore. In 1986, Wilder Smith and Edgar Andrews debated the two leading evolutionists in Britain, Richard Dawkins and John Maynard Smith at Oxford. A lion's den with the two strongest Darwinian lions in Europe. Yet even there, over a third, almost half, of the staunchly pro-evolution audience voted that the creation side had won the debate. The vote count became a contentious issue. There were claims of a cover-up by the Oxford Student Union, um, and then it goes on to say, but uh, reports from those in attendance to say that the contrary to the ground rules of the debate uh, Dawkins and Maynard Smith repeatedly attacked religion while the creationists only used scientific arguments. Uh and he says, yeah, Dawkins himself had to be had to be reprimanded by the moderator for attacking yeah. Wilder Smith about his religious views. Dawkins implored the audience not to give any votes to the creationists, lest it be, quote, a boss on the execution es- es- of Ancient University of Oxford. So uh, that
4: debate's
5: actually online. You can hear the audio of that and uh yes I yeah, actually and I've read some of Wilder Smith's works and uh Norman Geisler, who's an old earth creationist and Wilder Smith was young earth creationist, but uh Norman Geisler still speaks very highly of Wilder Smith. He was one of the most brilliant minds uh on the planet i've not, I haven't heard that debate but but that's my point is you're you're going to a pro evolution crowd and convincing four to ten people that superior to evolution. That's a tremendous, tremendous victory right there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So just this this idea that science and the Bible are in conflict, you you hear this. You hear this kind of nonsense of, oh, you're a creationist, but you use computers and you like to drive cars. You know, somehow that is... uh, you know, we're being inconsistent as being, you know, creationists and and using science or something. You know.
5: Yeah. Well, the, the key there is that evolutionists have proven a lot of of scientific uh, truths, but it, it, that's that's okay because the creationists agree with everything that the evolutionists have have actually proven true. It's what the evolutionists hasn't proven true that uh, they should ponder. They haven't proven that something can can come from nothing totally without a cause. They just assume that that happened. They haven't proven that life can come from non-life without intelligent intervention. They just assume that that happened. They haven't proven that multi-celled animals came from single-celled animals. Um, uh, they just assume that. They, they have no proof. You know, the list goes on and on, intelligence from non-intelligence, animals with backbones from animals without backbones. Basically, every major jump in in the evolutionary theory, actually the evolutionary model,
4: every major
5: jump is assumed it's not proven. So, yeah, you know, evolutionists and creationists, who are scientists, have done an amazing amount of job proving things, proving scientific truths that has enabled us to have cell phones, well, my brother mark um he uh, he led the research on the q phone
4: you know he's worked for everybody from verizon
5: to at&t to logheed works for the government whatever but he, he's real high up the ladder on uh, electronic research and cell phone technology um but uh he not only believes he's he's roman catholic by faith but he's a Christ-centered Catholic, he claims to trust in Jesus alone for salvation, loves listening to my sermons, and um, uh, and he's a creationist. He doesn't even believe God used evolution. In fact, I, I think he's a young earth creationist. So the idea that go. believing in creation is inconsistent with believing in what science has actually proven, yeah, it, not only is that not the case, but you've got some of these scientists that are cutting edge. I mean, my brother's team, they won the research during 9-11. I think he was working for Motorola at the time. And the government sent out a problem and said, get your best researchers on this, and whoever solves the problem will helo them in to the to 9-11, to ground zero. And the problem was this. How do you locate bodies in the rubble without their cell phones being on? And my brother and his research team won the competition and had to be heloed in uh, to uh, the ground zero of 9-11 to help search for the bodies uh, through the cell phones on the corpses without the cell phones being on. And I can't get into any of the details there, um, but the idea that um, if since my brother Mark is a creationist, uh his idea of science is uh probably limited to rubbing two sticks together and hopefully uh producing a fire eventually um that's just uh that's just propaganda and if that's all right. Dawkins has got um,
4: he's it. shooting
5: blanks and he's been shooting blanks for a long time now you know american culture um, we have been dumbed down significantly with an education system that indoctrinates in political correctness rather than truly educates, and um, so ad hominem arguments can go a long way. If you got a lot of money on your side, and you can name-call, and you got the media backing you, yeah, you can sound real persuasive, but to the few people out there that are still thinking and using their minds, uh, Richard Dawkins is shooting blanks.
2: Yeah, and I think it's important to point out uh, as well that all of them, all the major branches of science, were started by those who believed in God, and most of them were biblical, uh, were, were Bible believing Christians, and it's it's they wanted to know the mind of God. Henry Henry Morris has a great book called Men of Science, Men of God, uh, and yeah. he goes through the different pro- profiles of uh, you know the, the branches of uh, modern science. So. Uh, one quick note, too, for those listening, in uh, August, as I said at the beginning of the show, next month, starting next week, actually, uh, we're dedicating the whole month to science and the Bible, and we're going to have on, next week, Dr. Jay Weil, the Young Earth creationist, done a lot of work uh, in the homeschool community with uh, writing textbooks, etc., PhD, nuclear chemist. We're going to have Jonathan Sarfati on the show. We're going to have Dr. Steve I love Jonathan
4: Sarfati. That guy is... Yeah,
2: he's He's, he's got a really, new book. Uh, I think uh, several hundred pages it, yeah. on on Genesis one through eleven. So looking forward to that. So, you know, for those interested in in the scientific uh, apologetics, make sure you join us next month as we'll be looking at that extensively. Doctor,
4: another
5: to Richard Dawkins. I doubt he's listening, but um, <laughs> I'd like to. I'd like to see just out of curiosity. I'm not trying to prove a point or anything, but I. You know this idea that you got to be an ignoramus to believe that God exists. I would like to see what Jonathan Sarfati's IQ is, and then run that up against Richard Dawkins, just out of curiosity. But uh, if, uh, yeah. if Richard Dawkins doesn't want to do that, he could just play him in chess and see what happens. But uh, but yeah, yeah Sarfati's
2: pretty,
5: pretty off the charts. I met him. I am yeah. so bummed. He says he's actually a shy. Kind of guy. We were both speaking at a conference and a uh, very reflective kind of guy. So he does most of his speaking publicly, but, you know, behind, I don't know, maybe he was tired or something, but like that, but it was hard to get a conversation going with him because he's, he's such a sweet, quiet guy. And then he married a gal from New Jersey. So he, he, I think quiet people, i married a quiet gal and um, my wife, Kathy. And so I think loud people, like quiet people, and Quiet people like loud people or whatever, but uh, but whatever the case, uh, yeah, he's a Jonathan Sarfati. I recommend everything that guy does. He's he is my favorite um, creation scientist by by far.
2: Wow, I didn't know he's he's mine too. Hands yeah, down. Like you say, not only would he beat Dawkins in chess, but he'd beat them blindfolded.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> it's, yeah, and that's, how
5: he, that's how he yeah, rolls. He takes on 12 people simultaneously blindfolded and still wins yeah. in chess. He's a,
4: it's a
5: world-class chess player,
2: PhD chemist. So join us for that. Doc, talk to us a little bit. We got about 10 minutes. Talk to us uh, about miracles, possibility of miracles. As Dr. Geisler often says, if you don't have uh, a God that can act, you can't have acts of God. What has Hume and that done with uh, with
5: miracles? Everybody thinks, well, everybody, a lot of people think that Hume argued miracles are impossible, and he didn't. That was Benedict Spinoza. Uh, Benedict Spinoza's view, um, creation, you've got this non-personal God, and creation necessarily emanates from this non-personal God. So since creation is necessary, there's no choice involved, and God's not a personal God who can even make choices. So with Spinoza, he's arguing um, uh, against uh, uh, the existence of a personal God, and so he's got a whole different he's, – he's an ultra-rationalist and argues that miracles are impossible. And um, But, you know, all I would say for Spinoza is, yes, if you accept – Spinoza's God, which most people don't, you're going to believe miracles are impossible. But so few people embrace Spinoza's God that I think it's really a non-issue. Now, with David Hume, rather than being a rationalist, he was an empiricist.
4: And so he would say,
5: well, I think knowledge primarily comes through the five senses, and we don't even get the law of causality, from the five senses, that's something that we bring to the table, and he's not sure, and he, and he didn't even think it was, like, self-evidently true. So, you know, he ends up with almost total skepticism. So I, I think one thing we got to understand is that David Hume said, miracles are so improbable the wise man would never believe them, yet his philosophy produces skepticism. So really the wise man's not supposed to believe pretty much anything we're supposed to be skeptical about everything so so but whatever the case you know uh david Hume uh was just basically arguing that look if you a non non miraculous events happen all the time so there's a lot of evidence for non miraculous things uh, miracles have been reported occasionally, but there's so little reporting of them, he equates that with having little to no evidence for them. So he's saying, look, the wise man is going to go with the highest degree of probability. Miracles are are reported so infrequently. Natural events are reported so regularly. The wise man is always going to side with uh, miracles not happening. So he says, miracles are so improbable, the wise man will only believe the probable. But that's not the way you do history. You don't say, well, most guys who've ever lived were not as unique as Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, Therefore, I don't believe Napoleon Bonaparte existed because that's very improbable that another Napoleon Bonaparte will be born anytime soon. So, because he was so unique, I'm just not going. I'm, I'm, I'm a wise man. I'm just not going to believe it. So, so the the idea that uh, it would be like saying, um, common events happen so much more frequently than unique events that the wise man will only believe in common events. I mean, that just that just doesn't make sense, really. When you really boil it down, um, uh. It's um, and and so so but basically he's not handling history in in, uh, in the way you should deal with history. Whether we when we ask whether an event occurred in history, we don't ask how common is that event. Um, what we ask is is there good and early evidence for that particular event? So when we take uh, an event like the. Uh, miracle claim of Jesus' bodily resurrection and we examine it and we examine the evidence for or against it, to this day there has been no widely embraced naturalistic alternative to the uh, resurrection data. Um, and the most plausible explanation uh is that Jesus bodily rose from the dead, that Jesus of Nazareth bodily rose from the dead. Historians will often tell you that Jesus' death by crucifixion in the 1st century A.D. is one of the most firmly established historical facts of the 1st century A.D. What they don't tell you, though, is that there's just as much historical evidence for Jesus' bodily resurrection, but some of these historians throw that out based on a philosophical bias against miracles not based on lack of historical evidence. And so if we just do history the way it should be done and don't have a bias against miracles, um, uh, I think that we would see that the case for miracles is incredibly strong. So basically what I'm saying is uh, whether you use Hume's empiricism or Spinoza's rationalism, uh, the objection against miracles is a philosophical bias It is not uh, dealing with the historical evidence. Now, if you can present good, strong evidence for the existence of a personal creator God, and I believe that uh, that some of the greatest philosophers in history uh, history have done exactly that, if you can present good, strong reasons for believing in the existence of a personal, rational creator God, then automatically miracles are possible. And if this rational God created us in his image so that we can reason and that we can enter into a relationship with him, then it only makes sense that he would do uh, miraculous, he would cause uh, events to occur which supersede natural laws uh, to catch our attention uh, when he wants to communicate with us. And so, um, so actually I think the preponderance of the evidence actually tilts, in favor of miracles once you acknowledge the existence of a personal, rational God. So it's not a coincidence that the three major theistic religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, all in their traditional forms acknowledge the creator God as a miracle-working God. Um, And so deism, the idea that God created the universe and then left it alone uh, and created rational beings but doesn't want to communicate with us, that really begs the question if he created the, if he did the greatest miracle and created the universe and there's good scientific and philosophical evidence for that then why not uh perform lesser miracles uh to communicate with us and um you know why create such a vast universe and then not even care enough about it to intervene in the events of mankind so i think deism you know once you acknowledge the existence of, the, of a rational creator god Um, and there's good evidence for that, deism is the anti-intellectual view to hold, um, because then I think that miracles not only are possible, but we've got good reason to believe that God,
4: you know, if, if there
5: is a personal creator God, maybe he wanted to, you would think he would want to communicate with us on the pages of human history. Is there any person or any events that really stick out on the pages of human history that might cause us to ponder whether or not God was trying to get our attention? And when you look at Jesus of Nazareth, uh, he sticks out like a sore thumb. He stands above all others. Even Napoleon Bonaparte had to acknowledge that, that Jesus of Nazareth could accomplish things could conquer the hearts of men without having a great military, without being a general. And uh, all of a sudden, um, I I think uh, Jesus of Nazareth unlocks the whole meaning of history, the whole meaning of reality. And when everything is said and done, I think we're faced with the true meaning of life. Once we look at the empty tomb and the risen Lord, we're faced with the reality that the true meaning of life is this, uh, to personally know Christ and to make him known. And so um, and so, I think in the end, life is just one big cruel joke if we don't embrace uh, miracles and the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead.
2: Amen, Doc. We're out of time, my friend. We are out of time. But uh, as usual, you nailed it. Um, folks, we'll put the link up right now to the book and to his other books. Uh, Doctor Fernandez has been just an incredible um he's had a major influence on my life. I just am I'm so thankful to God for him, for his wife, and uh can't wait to see you in October, Doc. Uh
5: can't wait myself. God God bless you, brother.
2: You too, my friend. God bless. All right folks, join us next week, Doctor Jay Weil. We will be looking at some of the latest scientific discoveries that support intelligent design and creation it's got a great month then in October we're going to be dedicating it to the protestant reformation and i uh, hope to have at least one debate planned for you guys so be sure to tune in god bless